DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. We are joined now by Jeff Perlman, author of Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Laker Dynasty. Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How you doing? Good. So, you get a few years removed, and people sometimes are willing to go into details that they can't go into when it's all happening because, uh, you know, it's, it's not okay to violate the sanctity of the locker room, and you still got to work with these people, play for this coach, or have this guy as a teammate. So when you get a few years removed, you tend to get a few juicy stories, some details. I mean, I think we know the bigger plot, but you get some details to fill stuff in. What are a couple of the details that you picked up as you uh, gathered information for this book that weren't out there earlier and are actually quite interesting? All right, so this is, I have not told this story before while promoting this book, but since we're we're on in Salt Lake City. One of my favorite moments in this book is um, after the Jazz eliminate the Lakers um, in the playoffs, and Greg Ostertag talks a load of trash about Shaquille O'Neal, like a load of trash. And, you know, Shaq can say what he wants, but he's home now on vacation, and I'm still playing. So Shaq basically reads all this, and it builds up in him, and builds up in him, and he is furious. And the next year, uh, uh, the season, Shaq was out with an injury, and it's, uh, it's before the first game of the year. And he's standing courtside, and he sees Greg Ostertag, Utah Jazz Center. And he's like, yo, Greg, I don't really like the stuff you were saying about me, man. I, that my kids have to read that. I, I do not like that. Ostertag says, you, you know what, Shaq, go after yourself. And Shaq reaches back his bare hand and just smacks Ostertag across the face. Ostertag falls to the floor like a napkin, like just crumbles to the floor. And he's looking around for his contact lens going, where's my contact lens? Where's my contact lens? And all the Lakers and a bunch of Jazz are gathered around and nobody's helping him and no one's coming to his defense. And one Laker told me it was the most pathetic thing he's ever seen. It was Greg Ostertag getting just smacked in front of everyone by Shaq and crumbling and trying to find his contact lens on the ground before getting up and walking off in the walk of shame. And I haven't told that. I mean, I just kind of love that because it's, it's very uh, geographically relatable to where you are right now. I don't know how well known the Ostertag uh, Shaq relationship was back then, but yeah. it, was, it was not great. Yeah, I think you just pulled the scab off an old wound there because Greg was really not the same after that. Yeah, that that's story. a funny thing. Yeah, he really wasn't. No, he that's wasn't. Amazing thing. And you know, um, not that this is the Greg Ostertag book, but you know, teammates told me like. He really, like, he thought he was tough and he thought he was big. He wasn't the hardest worker. He wasn't the most skilled. But the one thing he had going for him was size and kind of this brute force. And after getting smacked by Cope, uh, by Shaq in front of everyone, it sort of took away. It was like Mike Tyson getting knocked out by Buster Douglas, where suddenly you're like, oh, it's just this guy. It's actually not that big a deal after all. A huge moment in that rivalry. A huge moment in that rivalry. A lot of stuff in this book. Uh, we got it uh, yesterday. Uh, online, and I've been trying to read as much as I can in the last 24 hours, literally right up until we went on the air this morning. Uh, I can go a hundred different directions, so hopefully I go in ones that are our listeners would enjoy or find interesting. One of the things that struck me is that in your attempts to speak to people, at least uh, the stuff that I read, is that there was, like Phil Jackson says, uh, I'm only here to talk to you because Jeannie Buss says, 
I have to. And then you're up in Montana, I believe it was, and he gives you eight hours. J.R. Ryder, uh, you try to track him down. You don't have success. You show up at his door in Chandler, Arizona. He seems to be very aggressive towards you basically get off my lawn and you explain what you're there for and then he gives you almost three hours of time when you just basically showed up cold and he's saying i got stories man why do you think that people were so willing to give you so much time to talk on the subjects that you were looking to and into uh interview them on i think a lot of it is it's sort of the uh, equivalent of why uh, you graduated from wherever you know, whatever college, USC in 1996. And your best days were in your fraternity. Man, I had a great time at whatever. And it was awesome and blah, blah, blah. In 1996, it's like, look, you're a brother. You can't tell anyone about this. You can't tell anyone about this. You know, what we did to the plebes or whatever. You can't tell anyone. And it's 2000. It's like, you haven't told anyone, have you? No, nah, I haven't told anyone. You tell anyone, nah. Then 2005. And you're like, ah, I guess, you know, it's really funny. I, I don't know. And then by, you know, you're basically like, these are the best days of my life. These are the funniest stories of my life. I'm not just going to keep them to myself. And it's the same with being on a basketball team and being on a team like that. Like enough time has passed where I think a lot of the players, like these are the best days of my life. This was the most fun I had. This was the craziest experience I had is with these same 15 guys all season. And here's the roller coaster. I just think it's sort of like the human uh, desire to tell stories and the protection that time has. And also just being completely honest, I reported and wrote the book um, before Kobe's death. So there certainly was a comfort probably that wouldn't have been quite the same if it had been immediately after uh, January 26th. Jeff Perlman joining us. The book is Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Laker Dynasty. So how many fights were there? How many guys did these guys punch? Because you open with a story about Kobe on the bus not getting his hundred bucks for making a half court shot from one guy, so he punches the guy and then is immediately just filled with all kinds of you know grief and apologizing and crying on the phone and saying he's sorry. How often did these guys blow up and haul off and hit somebody? I mean, it wasn't a regular. It wasn't like every five days they were getting in fights. There's that one was a big one because uh, Smokey Walker was ready to just destroy Kobe Bryant and actually had Phil. He was on a bus in Cleveland and said to Phil Jackson. Phil, stop the bus, stop the bus, and challenge Kobe Bryant right there to get off the bus. Then there was during the lockout year, Shaq and Kobe in a pickup game, and Kobe getting mad and frustrated with Shaq calling too many fouls, and Shaq basically smacking him across the face and threatening to have him traded to Vancouver when the Grizzlies were in Vancouver. There was Shaq dragging Brian Shaw across the locker room floor after getting mad at him. One time they taped, they duct taped Devin George and looked naked to practice court and walked off. And left him there, having to get un. He ended up having a janitor come and take the tape off of him and get him, you know, find a way to get a naked Devin George home. So there were definitely fights, but um, mainly, and oh, there was also obviously Rick Fox, Doug Christie, one of the great fights of all time on the court when Doug Christie's wife comes running down with swinging her pocketbook at Rick Fox. So there were definitely a lot of fights. A lot of it was was sort of passive aggressive in that locker room. There was Shaq taking shots at Kobe, Kobe taking shots at Shaq then apologizing, then more shots. It was sort of this ongoing soap opera where you never kind of knew what would happen. One of the things I took from it, you know, this was a a team that most people believe left some titles on the table. 
And if they could have found a way between the two stars to, to find some harmony, maybe they could have won more. But one of the things that I took from this, correct me if I'm wrong, is that folks, particularly somebody like Phil Jackson, didn't necessarily have a lot of regret that it didn't go beyond where it went. And it ended when it was it ended when it ended. And there wasn't a lot of sadness that it ended a the way it ended, and how quickly, relatively speaking, it did end. Um, I would agree with that. I um, I think we in sports tend to say, ah, oh, how many they could have won. Like I wrote a book, my first book ever was about the '86 Mets, and people would say, man, that team should have been a dynasty. And I always say, yeah, it could have been a dynasty if Dwight Gooden wasn't addicted to cocaine. So that's a big if. Like if you want to play that game, if 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 you can. Shaq and Kobe, by the time they lost to Detroit, they were done with each other. It was Shaq was desperate for a contract extension that Jerry Buss wasn't giving him. Joe Jackson had no idea what was going on with his deal, whether he was coming back. Kobe had one foot out the door going to the Clippers. Kobe was also flying back and forth from Eagle, Colorado. Felt like he wasn't getting the support from teammates or the organization. Um, in the finals against Detroit, obviously they got beaten down pretty pretty good. Afterwards, uh, Kobe says to a teammate, I'm never playing with that mf again. Um they just squeezed everything they could out of that, everything they could. And at the end, when they lost to Detroit, they were just kind of a mess. Peyton and Malone were there. It wasn't a smooth season at all. The triangle offense was falling apart. It just had run its course. So I, I can't see any real – yeah, if, they, if all people did was play basketball and not have human emotions, sure, they could have won another two titles or three titles. But if you throw in emotions and personalities, it was as done as you could be. It was just over, completely over. So one thing that was reported a long time ago, but maybe talking to people, you're going to have a better feel for this, was that the last year, Phil was in the back of the bus on a laptop writing a book about the team he was coaching, when typically the coach would say, this stays in the group. And meanwhile, this guy is writing in the back of the bus, getting ready to cash in on that. Did that have a big impact on the team or... Were things falling apart so completely that that just didn't matter? There were bigger issues. Well, it didn't. It didn't have an impact during the season, um, but after when that book came out, um, the last season. First of all, it's a great book. It's a really great book and great insight into that season. Um, a lot of the players were really pissed off because it felt like a violation. Again, how many times do coaches and organizations preach family, family, family? We're a family. What happens here stays here. And then as soon as the season is over, this tell-all book comes out that basically takes the legs out from under Kobe Bryant. Um, so I, I would not say it had an impact during the season. I would say after the season, um, there were a lot of people who were a little, felt that he had gone behind their backs and, and it was not the right thing to do. There's always a lot of twists and turns and maybe some fate and whatever you want to call it as far as how things end up being the way they are. You know, you look what I'm talking about, how Kobe got to the Lakers. Like Donovan Mitchell, just use a small example. You know, it was a game, a draft day trade with the Nuggets, and they had worked him out, the Jazz, and the GM, Dennis Lindsay, told people, if anybody mentions this who were in the gym, you'll be fired immediately because of what they thought of Mitchell. And obviously he's turned out to be a real good player and just barely getting started in his NBA stardom. And we know Jerry West said that, you know, it was the best workout he'd ever had. And, and the Nets were there, and Cal Perry was saying, well, Jerry West says it, it's good enough for me, and they went back and forth. But a crazy little thing, and I'm stretching the truth a little bit, so just play with me, but basically uh, Kobe and his family, his parents, got turned off because they gave Kobe a middle seat on a plane flying to New Jersey or something like that? 
Yeah, but that's not that is true, hundred percent. The Nets booked his flight. So the Nets were Kobe out I think five times overall, it was either four or five times. And at one time he was flying to LA after and whoever booked the travel for the Nets got him in a middle seat commercial and he was not happy and his people are not happy. But the real reason he wound up not going to the Nets, I mean, there was this whole, the Nets had the number eight pick. They were dead set on taking Kobe Bryant. Kobe had signed the Adidas deal. His people wanted him in L.A. Jerry West desperately wanted him. Kobe's agent, Arn Tellum, was a really good friend to Jerry West, made it clear to Jerry West he wants to be in L.A. Um, Kobe's camp starts calling John Calipari and saying he will not sign with the Nets. And Calipari's freaking out. He's a young coach, first year. What am I going to do? John Nash is a GM. He's like, Cal, he's going to sign with us. This is all a bluff. I don't know, man. I think he's going to sign. Then uh, Kerry Kittles' agent, David Falk, Kerry Kittles from Villanova desperately wants to play with the Nets, calls John Calipari and says, listen, if you don't draft Kerry Kittles, if he's there, I'm never going to have a guy play for you again. Oh, my God, what the heck? This is John Nash is like, listen, they're bluffing. This is what it is in the NBA. They're bluffing. But John Calipari in this contract is final say on personnel. And right before the draft, he holds a meeting and he says, well, here's what we're going to do. If Kerry Kittles is there at number eight, we're taking Kerry Kittles. If he's not there, we're going with Kobe. Kittles is there. They draft Kerry Kittles. Jerry West knows Charlotte with number 13 is going to get Kobe. They make the trade for Vlade. I actually interviewed Kerry Kittles for the book, and he was like, he played against Kobe in summer leagues. He was like, I'm going to be honest, if I had the chance to draft Kobe, I'd probably take him over me too. So the Nets, you know, and Jason Williams, who played for the Nets and hated Calipari, told me, he's like, Calipari used to always act like a tough guy, and he ended up getting intimidated by a 17-year-old kid. That was pathetic. Jeff Perlman, author of The Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Laker Dynasty. You know, there are multiple quotes uh, from people who played with uh, Kobe in the early years. He just didn't seem comfortable with himself. You know, he didn't seem comfortable in his own skin. How much of that do you think that Kobe really foreshadowed um, what a lot of... um, the, the the difficulty a lot of foreign players would have making the transition and fitting in in the NBA. Kobe did grow up and went to high school in the U.S., but he lived for a long time in Italy as a young kid. How much did that make him not fit? And then how much of all of this was just, well, he went to the NBA as a teenager. Of course, he had to grow up and mature, and he had to do it in a spotlight on a massive stage, which, of course, complicated it. It would complicate it for everyone. That's the story of all these child stars, in, or not all, but a lot of the child stars in Hollywood. How do you sort all that out? What what was the kind of the issue with Kobe earlier in life as he figured himself out and got comfortable in his own skin. I mean, he definitely had a little bit of that sort of Gary Coleman thing where you're this precocious star, but you don't know how to open a checking account, you know, and your life is just sort of did one awkward moment after another. A lot of it. Yeah. He, he was basically a foreign player. He was born, you know, raised in Italy, only black kid around anywhere, moves to suburban Philadelphia to lower Marion, only black kid around um, is held as this sort of, phenom from a very young age signs an adidas shoe deal while i was a senior in high school takes brandy to the prom a woman a star singer he'd never met before um goes straight to the nba i mean his first his introduction to the other laker players was his first day of training camp in hawaii when they go around and introduce themselves he says my name is kobe bryant nobody here's gonna punk me you know like talk about the tone deafness of an 18 year old like at the same time jermaine o'neal also straight from high school is in portland uh, offering to get veterans orange juice and deliver their newspapers to him. You know, like, 
keep your head down and just be humble. Kobe didn't know that. He never knew that. He, it was never, it was just about going hard. And a lot of the players back then, and you can see it really sound laughable the way he sort of imitated Michael Jordan from licking his lips to the way he spoke, the way he sort of dressed himself with the wristbands and the way he carried himself. And a lot of his early life was imitating people and trying to figure out who he was and how to come across the right way and thinking five steps before doing. I just think there's a lot. It is, it's, it's being young in the NBA. It's trying to present a front that isn't real. It's not being brought up in the normal background. It's all those things, but having a dad as a star, um, a lot of things merging together to conspire against you in a way. Well, Jeff, we appreciate the time. Uh, we've enjoyed reading the book, the portions we've gotten through it. It's uh, The Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Laker Dynasty. Jeff, thanks for a few minutes, and good luck with the book. All right, thank you. Take care.